Well, last week we began our our look at one of the greatest little sections in, in the whole Sermon on the Mount and maybe possibly all of Scripture. What a wonderful, at least hint at what's, what's to come. I, I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to be again in Matthew six nineteen to 21. Jesus says there, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now last week we looked at the command And it was a a two-sided command. It was negatively, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. That was the negative side. And then there was the positive side, but do lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The one side is temporary. Earthly treasures decay. They rot. They can be stolen. They can be lost. and, And ultimately, they cannot come with us into eternity. Every one of us will die and we will lose our earthly treasures. But on the other side, treasures in heaven will last forever. Neither moth nor rust will destroy those treasures. No thief will steal there. Heavenly treasure is secure. It is safe. It is everlasting. It is sure. And last week I said something like this, we, wh- whatever we do or suffer in this life for Jesus' sake or for righteousness' sake will be rewarded in heaven with treasures. Whatever we do for Jesus' sake, whatever we suffer for Jesus' sake in this life will be rewarded in heaven. And so if we put our treasure now into Jesus' service, we will be greatly rewarded with treasure then. I showed, or at least I, I tried to show last week, that treasure now is our time, our talents, our resources. And that's what we are to invest. That's how we lay up treasures in heaven, by investing our time and talents and resources into the Lord's work. By investing our energy, our, our, our resources, our, our gifts into Jesus' work and into the church and into people's lives. And if we help people towards their salvation and towards their growth and sanctification in whatever ways we do it, we will be rewarded. According to Luke 20, 12, 23, we will be rewarded with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and where no moth destroys. A treasure that does not fail. But this whole idea about treasure in heaven brings up some big questions. First of all, at least in my mind, what is heaven? How does heaven compare to earth? You know, which which treasure is better? And then what is treasure in heaven? 
What is treasure in heaven? Do we really need treasure there? You know, I, I think maybe you've reasoned along these lines. Do we need treasure there? After all, I'm, if I'm a believer, heaven is going to be my home forever. And there'll be no grief or sin or tears there. And if you think about that, we'll be content with whatever we have there. And so why worry myself maybe with this whole idea of treasure in heaven? Some have gone so far down that kind of a line of reasoning that that they deny the whole concept of reward altogether. Some believers leave no room in their theology for treasures in heaven. But here is our Lord telling us that, that we are to lay up treasures in heaven. We are commanded to do so, and we do it by doing certain things while we're on earth, like giving and praying and fasting. Remember in Matthew 6 and, and verse 3, and you could just look at it there. Jesus said, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then look down at verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And again in verse 17. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may may, may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And from these verses, it seems pretty clear that there are rewards in heaven and that they will vary depending upon what we do on the earth. And so we need to talk about these things and we need to think about these things and we need to look at what Scripture teaches about heaven and about rewards in heaven. Now today we're going to focus just simply on heaven and then next week we're going to look at the concept of rewards. And so what is heaven? What is heaven like? What will we have there? What will we do there? And that's what I want to look at with you today. And such a look should help us, by God's grace, to anticipate heaven. It should help us to do what Paul commands in Colossians 3 and verse 1. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Ultimately, knowing what Scripture teaches on heaven, which is to say knowing what God has revealed about heaven, that will motivate us to lay up treasures there. And this is so exciting for me because what this means is that this message has a tremendous potential to motivate us to pour out our lives for the glory of God. You know, thinking about heaven should empower us. It should encourage us and motivate us to live in light of heaven now. It should make a difference in how we live our day-to-day lives. The thought of heaven should change our daily lives. The doctrine of heaven is immensely practical. And so where do we begin this examination of heaven? Where do we begin an examination of heaven? Well, I want to begin at the beginning. But as we begin at the beginning, I want to remind you of, of something that I introduced last week. And that is that one of the central truths of the Christian faith is the doctrine of the resurrection. 
The doctrine of the resurrection. And maybe I'll just say at this point, again, I didn't have an outline this week. I just kind of gave you the scriptures, the the main scriptures that we're going to look at. We're just going to kind of look at kind of verse after verse after verse of what Scripture teaches about heaven. But but what I want, as we begin then, I want you to, you to remember that we are going to be resurrected. Jesus Christ, He died and He rose again. Jesus was and is the Son of God. And He was and is the second person of the Trinity. Right There's one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And God the Son took to Himself a fully human nature. The person of the Son who is God, He added a human nature to Himself so that He is fully God and fully man. One person, God the Son, with two natures, God and man. And He took this human nature to save fallen humanity from sin. He died to pay the penalty of death for our sin. He died as a man. He died like we die. If you think about how He died, He died like we die. His soul was separated from His body. His human soul separated from His human body. His body died and He was buried and His soul presumably went to heaven. But miracle of miracles, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rose again as He promised that He would and He was resurrected. And what happened In the resurrection, what did it mean that he was resurrected? Well, his body, his body that had been dead for three days, that Friday and Saturday and and Sunday morning, his body and his soul were reunited. And he came back to life, body and soul. He was reunited with his body and therefore he came alive. And this is important because our resurrection and our time in heaven is going to be patterned after His. He was a man who died and rose again. We are men and women who will die and will rise again. And so I want you to turn then with that to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where we're going to kind of get our, our start. We are going to go to the beginning, but I, we've got to go there via 1 Corinthians 15 and via this this thought about the resurrection. So, we could really read this whole chapter, but we're going to look, just, we'll start here at verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And so first, Jesus Christ was resurrected. He is the firstfruits, as Paul calls it. He is the, the prototype. And then at his coming, we will be resurrected as well. We will be reunited with our bodies. Saints who have been dead hundreds or even even thousands of years will be reunited with their bodies. And as Christ was resurrected, so we will be resurrected. And for Paul, this 
Confidence in the resurrection meant confidence to suffer in life now. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29, he says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now I need to just kind of stop there and because that's a, that's a interesting little verse there. And I need to say that we aren't sure exactly what this baptism on behalf of the dead is. There's many, many views, or maybe we should say educated guesses on, on what this is, but no one is exactly sure what it was. But we can be sure that Paul thought that the Corinthians knew about it and, and that somehow it furthered his case that the dead would be raised. And so he's trying to convince the Corinthians that the dead are going to be resurrected. And so somehow, whatever this cultural practice was, or whatever this thing was, uh, Paul, Paul knew that the Corinthians knew what he was talking about. But let's continue. So otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all... Why are people baptized on their behalf? And so the dead are raised is what Paul's saying there. Then continue on in verse 30. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You see, for Paul, the reality of his resurrection encouraged him to face danger. The reality of the resurrection encouraged him to lose his life for Jesus' sake, even to the point of fighting beasts in Ephesus. And without a physical resurrection hope, Paul says we should be pitied. We should, we should just get whatever enjoyment we can. We should just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But that is not the case. There is a resurrection. And the reason that the Christian can lose his life for Jesus' sake and give up treasures on earth now is this amazing hope that we will be resurrected. And not just go to heaven as disembodied spirits, but be raised to live again in physical bodies that will never die again. And with that as a, a bit of a foundation now, we can go back to the beginning. And so next in your outline is the book of Genesis. And so let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. We need to go back here and, and, and go back before the fall, before sin came into the world, to what God had originally created. And in Genesis 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Over a six-day period, God made the heavens and the earth. And for the heavens, when you think about the heavens, think about the sky and the air, or even maybe further out towards what we might call outer space or the atmosphere. Scripture says that, that rain and hail and wind and snow, they're all said to come from heaven. Also, the stars and the sun are in the expanse of the heavens. And you can even see that in just Genesis 1 and verse 14. But heaven's also spoken of as the place where God dwells. Isaiah 63, 15 asks God to look down from heaven from his holy habitation. 
Psalm 33 verses 13 and 14 says that the Lord looks down from heaven where he sits enthroned. Isaiah 66 and verse 1 says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. And so God created the heavens and the earth and heaven is where God dwells, but it also includes the sky above. And on earth, God created the plants and the animals, and he also created mankind. And man was made to have dominion over the creation. We were made as image bearers to rule over the creation as God's representatives. Look at verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Mankind was created on earth to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over the rest of creation. Dominion is a a kingly term. It means to rule. And so before sin, we were made, mankind was made to rule the earth as God's representatives. And then in Genesis chapter 2, the narrative kind of goes back and gives more detail about man and woman. Look at Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 5. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going from up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And the man became a living creature, literally a a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Man was made from the dust of the ground. We were made physical beings. God could have made us as bodily or sorry, bodiless spirits, but he didn't. He could have made us like the angels who dwell in the heavens, but he didn't. We were made physical beings. We were made with physical bodies, flesh and bone. And Genesis 1.31 kind of looks at all of creation and says, and God saw everything that he had made, and note it's everything that he had made, including the man and woman, everything that he made. And he saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Our physical bodies with their physical senses and desires are good. They originally were good. Now we know that they've been corrupted by the fall, but originally these physical bodies were good. And eating and drinking is good and God created us to do that. Physical touch is good. Our sense of feeling, our hot and cold or moisture and humidity and all of the feelings that we have with our physical bodies, it's good. 
seeing and hearing and tasting and feeling and smelling, all of these physical senses, God originally made good. And through them, we come to know God's goodness as he blesses us and takes care of our physical bodies. Now, with our resurrected bodies in heaven, we will enjoy physical blessings like eating and drinking and smelling and hearing and feeling. Now, right now in our world that, that has been cursed because of sin, we, we still very much enjoy the good things that God provides, right? Don't, don't you enjoy a, a good hot dog roast or a, a good warm fire or a good, you know, these, these kind of cozy things or maybe some nice air conditioning on a hot day and all of these kind of things that we enjoy in our physical bodies. Now, we know there's this, there's the less enjoyment because of sin, but, but yet we enjoy these physical things now. We can only imagine then what Adam and Eve would have enjoyed in the Garden of Eden that God had created for them. In verse 9, as we continue, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. There's a physical thing and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you skip down to verse 15, the Lord put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. And he was given, the man was given rewarding work. He was given good work to do. And of course, you know what happened. Our first parents sinned. The earth was cursed. Mankind was kicked out of that garden. Death entered the world. Work became hard. Look at chapter 3 and verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and the, and at the east of the garden of Eden he was, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man was kicked out of the garden of Eden and we don't see that garden again. At least in not until Revelation 2-7 where we see uh, the tree of life. Revelation 2-7, we hear of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The tree of, di- of, of life which is in the paradise of God. And that tree is in the middle of the street. That, that, that tree that was in the Garden of Eden is now in the middle of the street of the New Jerusalem, a city in heaven. And with that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We've seen a little taste of what God originally created in the Garden of Eden. And now we're going to look at what he is going to restore. Revelation 21 and verse 10 John says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Revelation 22, verse 1, then continues on, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb 
through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so we see this, this great city coming down from heaven, from God. We'll look at this more a little bit later, but in that city, they're in the middle of the city, in the midst of the city, down what, what might be the main street. There's a, a river flowing and there's a street maybe on both sides of the river and a tree growing on both sides of the river. And it's the tree of life, the same tree that was in the original Garden of Eden. Now, something happened between Genesis 3 and, Gen- and Revelation 22. We, mankind, we were kicked out of Eden and it was, it was, it was removed. And, and, and that Garden of Eden was removed possibly to heaven itself. And in Revelation 22, we are back. We are dwelling once again with God in paradise. And so what happened in between? Well, Jesus was promised and then Jesus came. Jesus is called in Scripture the last Adam and He came to undo the damage that the first Adam did. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that God originally planned for creation will be fulfilled. Where Adam failed, Christ has succeeded. Adam was to rule the earth as God's representative and when He returns, Christ will rule on earth as God's representative and we will rule with Him. In His first coming, Christ conquered sin and death. And in His second coming, Christ will destroy His enemies, establish an everlasting kingdom in which righteousness dwells. But before we get to the second coming in Revelation 21 and 22, we need to look at what I'm going to call the intermediate heaven. Or maybe we could call it the present heaven. And what we want to ask is what happens when a Christian dies now? What happens when a Christian dies now? And to answer that, let's go to John chapter 14. Here Jesus is addressing His disciples before His crucifixion and resurrection. He says, Let not your heart or your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And that I, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus said he would go to prepare a place for his disciples. And this place is also a a place for every one of us who believes in Jesus Christ. Those of us who have come to him by faith. And so now we need to ask then, well, where did Jesus go? Where is he now? Where did he go to prepare this place? Well, he ascended to his father. And if if you want, you could just flip a few pages to John 20 and verse 17. Jesus said to her, that is to Mary, he says, do not cling to me 
For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so Jesus is ascending to the Father, and the Father dwells in heaven. And Jesus now is at the right hand of the Father. He's seated on his Father's throne. Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says about God the Son that he is the radiance of, of, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so the resurrected Jesus is in heaven at the Father's right hand. And he will come again and take us to be with him. Again, John 14 and verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now I understand this come again to refer to the rapture. The meeting of the, the meeting the Lord in the air before the tribulation as, as described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 1 Corinthians 15. But even if you don't understand those texts the same, everyone believes that there, there must be a time for the saints to be in heaven with Jesus before the new heavens and the new earth. Paul spoke of dying before the return of Christ and in multiple places. And I want to turn to those with you now. And I want you to go first to Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter one. And we'll look at starting at verse 21. Paul says, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, Paul makes a distinction here between living in the flesh, in other words, continuing to live on the earth in his body, and then between dying. And so it's either living or dying. To die would be to depart and to be with Christ. And he would leave his flesh behind and he would be in the presence of Christ in heaven. And he says that second option, that second option to, to, to die and to, to leave his flesh behind, that is, he says it's far better. It's far better. Heaven is far better than life in this flesh now. That is, the intermediate heaven is better than life on earth as it is now. But now Paul, he, as he kind of thinks about these options, Paul sees that, that he can lay up treasures in heaven, that he can, he can be engaged in fruitful labor if, if he, if he works now. And so he sees this, this opportunity for fruitful labor. He can, he can lay up for himself treasures in heaven. And so he's hard pressed between these two choices. Now to see again the, the intermediate heaven, let's go then to second Corinthians chapter five. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Paul says, starting in verse 6, so we are always of good courage. Always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Away from the body, home with the Lord. And that thought by faith is what gave Paul courage even in the face of death, that to be away from the body would be to be in the Lord's presence. Now we get a glimpse of these people in the, what, we, what I'm calling the intermediate heaven in Revelation chapter 6. And so let's go to Revelation chapter 6. These are people that are away from the body and present with the Lord, at home with the Lord. They have left their flesh and their body behind and their their spirits have ascended to God. And in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9, we get this little glimpse of them when the fifth seal is opened. And so starting in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God And for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a little or a a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so these souls had been slain. They were absent from the body, away from the body, and at home with the Lord. And there's no reason to think that these souls are any different than any other souls who die before the return of Christ. And we know the scene is before Christ's return because they want the judge of all. These people, they they want the, the sovereign Lord who is holy and true to avenge their blood. Now, when Christ returns in Revelation 19, he will do just that. He will avenge their blood. He will destroy the enemies of God. But And so this is before the return of Christ. But notice a few things just from this passage. Notice that, that these souls are aware of what happened to them on earth. Souls who go to the intermediate heaven, they are aware of their life on earth. They recognize that they were martyred on the earth. And they can see what God is doing on the earth now. They seem to be looking down on the earth and they see that their blood hasn't been avenged yet. And so they can see what God is doing on the earth. And they were given white robes. Now it could be possible that that these are literal white robes. It could be possible that, that they have some sort of temporary physical bodies while they're in heaven. And to just kind of say that maybe that's not too exaggerated, just think about when angels came to earth. They were given, it seems, some sort of temporary bodies. They ate and drank with Abraham. Jesus has a human body in heaven right now. But they, these saints, whatever, whether these robes are, are literal or, or, uh, uh, metaphoric, whatever, whatever's happening there, notice that they're told to rest a little longer. And so these souls who have, have, have left their bodies, they are 
at rest in that place, but they're not in their final rest. They were at rest in that, in the place that, that Jesus had prepared for them, but they were not yet resurrected and they were not yet in, in what we, what, in what will be our final resting place. They were not in their final resting place and they are not in yet in what we would call our final resting place. And just to kind of see that then, I want you to turn now to Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 20. We see these same people again. And I, again, I think that this would also include us, those of us who have died and, and gone to be with the Lord. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, there's two things that I want you to see here. First, that These are the same saints that we saw in chapter 6. They had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. And secondly, these saints came to life and reigned with Christ. Now, they were alive in heaven when we saw them in chapter 6, but now they came to life in that they were resurrected. And they were then physically resurrected and they will now reign with Christ in resurrected bodies for a thousand years in what we call the kingdom of God. They will reign with Christ. They will reign over the earth as God originally planned for mankind. And those who are in that position or in that state, they are, they are blessed who share in the first resurrection. <clears throat> And so that was kind of a, a picture of the intermediate heaven and then the, the ending of the intermediate heaven. The intermediate heaven is kind of a, a temporary place where the, the souls of, of believers wait without their bodies until that day in which Christ returns and they will be resurrected to reign with him for a thousand years. And that thousand years then leads into what we call the eternal state. And so when we think of heaven, I think what we often end up thinking about is we think about the intermediate heaven. But the intermediate heaven is not where we will spend eternity. And so if you just kind of continue, look at Revelation 20 and now verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. 
and they will be tor- and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And after that picture comes the great white throne judgment and the wicked from all time who until that time had been in what we might call the intermediate hell. They will be judged and cast now into the lake of fire and they will be resurrected and cast into that lake of fire. A terrifying counterpart, if we could say it that way, to what we will enjoy forever. Remember we saw that in John 5 last week. An hour is coming, Jesus says, John 5.28, when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, but those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's a resurrection to heaven. There's a resurrection to hell. And from this point on in the book of Revelation, from chapter 20, verse 11 on, we see the eternal state. And this is our view then into what awaits us forever. The intermediate rest is over. The the thousand-year foretaste of heaven is over. The wicked are removed to their own place. And now only the saints remain on the earth. And they are resurrected in their physical bodies. This is the saints' everlasting rest and happiness. And it is glorious. Look at Revelation 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. God will create a new heaven and a new earth. In Matthew 28, Matthew 19, 28, Jesus calls this the 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 regeneration. Acts chapter 3 and verse 21 calls this the, the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago, the time for restoring all things, a new heaven and a new earth. Now, whether this is a, a new earth in the sense that it's, it's newly refurbished or new compared to the fallen old, or if it's new in the sense of an entirely new creation, I wouldn't be overly dogmatic about that. But there's a, a new earth for man to live on. And now in verse 2, I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so New Jerusalem, I I think this is the place that Jesus had prepared for us that was in heaven. It now, it now comes down, but again, it's, it's new and it comes down. And where does it come from? It comes from heaven. It comes down out of heaven from God. This is what the, and this is a, a city, a holy city, and this is what the writer of Hebrews talked about. This is what he says Abraham was waiting for. Just listen to Hebrews 11, starting at verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an, inher- as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's what Abraham was looking forward to, a city that has foundations, the same city that comes down in Revelation 21 and verse 2. Hebrews 11 verse 13 says, These all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who thus, who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to, to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Again, the city that comes down from heaven in Revelation 21 and verse 2. Now just to drive that Hebrews passage home a little bit, in the context of Hebrews, it's an encouragement to endure the difficulties of the present world by faith. By faith in these promises, those who lived before us, they endured the difficulties that they did as strangers and exiles on the earth, and they, they did it by looking forward to the reward. And so here's the reward, a new earth, a, re- a restoration of earth prepared by God, especially for us, made new for us as our eternal abode. And again, look at what it says there again in, in verse 2, Revelation 21-2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Think of the, the preparation of a bride. You know, there's the, the dress shopping and the hair doing and the makeup that's done. A bride prepares for her husband like she, on the day of her wedding, like she does on no other day. She puts all of, of her effort into looking her best. She brings in all of the, pulls all the stops, if that's a, a way that we can say it. She, she kind of does everything that she can to look her best on that day. And well, the, in the same way, God has prepared a city for us and he put his infinite almighty best into that city. And he made it specifically to please us. Heaven, if we can say it this way, heaven now comes down to the earth in the form of a city. And in verse 3, as we continue on, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God, what we call heaven, is now with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The dwelling of God, heaven, is now with man on the earth. Heaven comes down and God's throne comes down and there will never be a separation between between the earth and heaven again forever. God and man will be together now forever and we will have sweet communion with God. Look at verse 4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That restored fellowship with God, that, that is the key point of heaven. And please don't miss this, this is the, the, the key thing right here is this fellowship with God. So many books and movies and cultural references to heaven miss the the best part about heaven, which is God himself. 
In heaven, God is all in all, 1 Corinthians 15. And knowing Him in increasing measure and experiencing His goodness, that will be our highest joy. Now I spoke on this joy of knowing God a little bit when we looked at the, the what they call the beatific vision in Matthew 5 and verse 8. And actually you could, you could go and flip there. Look again at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. I can't spend as much time as, as we should on the, on the beatific vision of heaven, but we did look at it. Matthew 5 and verse 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Remember, the pure heart was a desire, a, a single-hearted desire to know God, or we could say a, a single-hearted desire to see God, to understand Him, and that, that desire will be rewarded forever in heaven as we will spend our days in sweet fellowship with the infinitely great God. David said in Psalm 16 and verse 11, You make known to me the path of life in your presence, In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so friends, don't miss the the great treasure in the field and the the pearl of great price. Heaven is heaven because God dwells with us there and without Him, it would be empty. Without Him, heaven wouldn't be heaven. But follow this, and, and I think this is important, with Him and because of Him, everything else in heaven will be perfectly fulfilling. God is going to bless His people with eternal joy and satisfaction on this new earth. And one of the most wonderful thoughts for me as, as I've been studying on heaven these past few weeks is this, that in heaven, God will manifest His goodness to us through the blessings that He bestows on us in that place. Every taste of food, Every sip of drink, every refreshment of water, every cool breeze in that place, every beautiful sight that we will see, every warm comfort will reveal to us the glory of God. And in that place, we will enjoy the person of God in new and increasingly delightful ways. And unlike now where we're tempted to forget God who richly gives us all things to enjoy, then we will praise God for every blessing and kindness that he pours out on us. And so as, as he blesses us in that place that he has created for us, it will just lead into increasing and increasing and better and better worship services and praises to his holy name. Revelation 21 and verse 5, and he who is see, and actually you, I want to, I think I want you to go back there. So let's, let's do that. Go back. Revelation. 21. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, 
As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The next few verses through Revelation 21 give a a more detailed look at the city. Revelation 21 and verse 22 continues and says, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is no temple in that place. All will behold the glory of God and of Jesus Christ the Lamb. The temple in the Old Testament kind of shielded the glory of God from the people, but now the, the Lord Himself is in the midst of that city and we can behold His glory and the glory of Jesus Christ. And it says the nations are going to bring their glory into the city. Now, I don't know, as I think about this, I don't know if if we will live in Jerusalem or if we will be part of the nations, maybe living somewhere like Canada or or maybe it'll be both. Maybe we'll have a holiday home in Jerusalem and a, another mansion back in La Crete. I'm not sure how that's going to work. But there's going to be nations of various tribes and tongues and languages and they're going to produce goods to the honor of the Lord and they're going to bring that to Jerusalem as as acts of worship. And we will serve God and the Lamb with fulfilling but restful roles as part of our worship. We will We will sing there and maybe we'll sing better than we've ever imagined the glory of God. But we will also have other things that we will do as acts of worship to our God. Maybe I will preach in the new Jerusalem on the glory and greatness of God in ways that I can only dream of now. Maybe one of you will have authority over ten cities. But whatever we do, it will be part of our worship. And whatever we do, it will be what God has designed for our good and for His glory. And whatever we do, we will love it and we will praise God for it in that place. Revelation 22 and verse 3 goes on, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. That is, they will have this, again, this intimate fellowship and knowledge with Him, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. They will reign forever and ever. We will reign with Christ over the new earth where heaven now dwells. You see, that was kind of ties us back to the beginning, right? That's what God had made the man to do is to, to, to rule and subdue the earth. And now through Christ, we will do just that. And this is the heritage that we will have. Brothers and sisters, this is our heritage. This place is our home and we will dwell with God there forever. 
And this place, this is where we are commanded to lay up treasures, eternal treasures. And because this is our heritage, we can serve the Lord and we can suffer here. Because this is our, because this is our heritage, we can use our treasures here, our time, our talents, our resources, our energy to lay up treasure there. And so let us adopt the attitude of Paul in Romans 8.18, which we read earlier this morning. Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray. Father, we, we're just overwhelmed to think about this, this place that you have made for us. This hope that we have that we will be resurrected and live in this new heaven and new earth in this city that you have prepared for us. Father, help us to set our hope there in greater ways. To live more for you now here as we will do there in that place. Father, help us to have an increasing knowledge of what awaits us in in eternity and our future. And help us to do what you have commanded us to do in Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20, to not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. Help us not to be distracted with the things of the earth and pursue this life now, but help us to give up our lives for your sake, to give and fast and pray and and do and suffer for you, to lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven where moth nor rust will destroy, where thieves will not break in and steal. Father, let our treasure be there. Let our hearts be there. Let our, our lives and our souls and our, and everything that we have be lived for you, Father. You are worthy. And we thank you again for this place that you have prepared for us. And we thank you that we will be with you there. In Jesus' name, amen.